0: A B L E S. Ebels. Remember that name because if you suffer from chronic joint and muscle pain like me, then Ebels broad spectrum CBD oil is your answer to your prayers the evil story began with the search for something natural to help manage chronic migraines but evil's helps more than just migraines from managing chronic pain anxiety depression and more evil's is truly a game changer in the natural alternatives to big pharma drugs and yours truly brian nichols here on the brian nichols show can indeed vouch for the quality of evil's having a herniated disc in my back Whew. coupled with years of sports injuries I was struggling to find something, anything, to help manage my pain. That is, until Ebel's. With the best quality product and customer service in the industry, Ebel's broad-spectrum CBD oil and Ebel's freeze gel easily stand above all the competition and right now Ebel's is offering a special discount to all members of the brian Nickel show audience on all orders all you have to do is head to ebels.com and use promo code tbns the brian Nickel show right tbns at checkout that's it discount applied again the code is tbns at checkout to start managing your pain today with the highest quality cbd on the market one more time That is code tbns at checkout and now on to the show Can I pause for a second and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. Well, hello there. I know, Saturday, you're you're like, Brian, what are you doing? It's it's Saturday, you never record. On Saturday, and candidly, you're right, uh, but I had an amazing conversation with one Nick Hudson, good friend of the show. We had him back on January 1st of 2021, just about four months ago, talking about, yes, these these lockdowns and the implications of said lockdowns. Well, I just had Nick on the show, and we were going to air the show uh, mid-April, but it just happened to coincide with an amazing uh, new talk he actually just did, and it was The Ugly Truth About Lockdowns, and it was recorded on YouTube. It's it's going viral. It's going wild. So I said, you know what? Heck with delaying this conversation, we're going to go ahead and we're going to launch this episode. today. Today's a special bonus episode for you folks here at the Brian Nichols Show audience. So all I ask in return, please do me a favor, make sure you uh, share today's episode. This is a super, super awesome episode, and really it digs into pretty much any question that you could possibly want to ask, like, okay, Dr. Fauci, what do real epidemiologists and immunologists think of him? Uh, let's talk about the variants. Um, Are those actually causing a lot of problems right now? A lot of this stuff, uh, Nick Hudson digs into, so it's a really great chance to learn a lot. But first, what you need to do is make sure you go and watch the amazing video. It's, uh, again, The Ugly Truth About Lockdowns. I'm including the link in the show notes about 27 minutes or so, but it's well worth every single minute. Then come back here and strap in for a nice behind-the-scenes. So with that being said, onto the show! Nick Hudson here on The Brian Nichols Show. Hello, Brian. Good to be back with you. Nick, it's so great to have you back. We we just had about, what, a half an hour conversation before we hit the magical record button because there's there's so much that you've been doing behind the scenes. And not even just behind the scenes. Now we're getting out there and you're doing a, a, a nice blitz. And actually, we're recording here on the 27th of March, you know, it's funny, this is going to be an episode a couple weeks from now. Um, I'm an officiant in a a really good buddy's wedding. And I was like, this is going to air sometime mid-April. And I'm like, no, 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 this, this information, this topic, we're going to make this a special bonus episode, probably airing today or tomorrow, because you just had a brand new um, video go out on YouTube, time to reopen society, um, or otherwise it was called the ugly truth about lockdowns, uh, which both are great names. And this is more of a behind the scenes um, for folks So first We need to make sure we're pointing folks towards this awesome YouTube video. We'll include the link in the show notes. Time to reopen society. Invest that like half an hour or so. And then come here because this is going to be a great chance for folks to hear not just some more context, some more nuance, but also a little bit more in terms of what's what's been the reception? What's been the overall, I guess, um, you know, the changing tenor that we're seeing, Nick? So how about this? The last time you were in the show, it was actually the 1st the of January and we're about four months removed from then. So a lot's changed since you were last in the show. Let's kind of fill the audience in. What has been going on in the past four months over at Panda?
1: Well, we've continued, Brian, to, to try and uh, build the organization's capacities to get the message out there. Um, panda is i think unrivaled in the world in terms of the the reach that it has we have uh, a really strong advisory board composed of some of the the leading specialists in fields like infectious diseases and and uh, epidemiology and then also we think it's very important to broaden so we have people from you know the fields of education and and uh, inside the organization itself they're you know, 150 odd um, uh, members who active members that include people from very diverse fields, pathology, actuarial science, economics, uh, microbiology, and so on. You know, just, just, and ecology. I found the ecologists are some of the best people to have in, on board in terms of understanding the epidemic. Um, they really do see things in a big picture fashion. Whereas a lot of these, especially epidemiologists, they've sort of learned how to solve a system of three differential equations and build an SIR model, um, and you know that it's a very balkanized, narrow frame through which to to view the world. And they want everybody else to go away. They don't want any other experts in their in their turf. And and I think that's also you know one of the things that has enabled the bad agents in the story to manipulate them to such a degree. And I really think it is about that. There are people here who have been driving towards a certain outcome. And and it's, it's particularly perverse. Uh, from country to country, from agency to agency, I mean, if you look at the World Health Organization, if you look at the CDC, we had in place very clear and detailed guidelines for what you should do if you're struck by a respiratory virus pandemic. And within the space of a few weeks, e- even a few days, probably that's more accurate way of describing it, but within the space of a few days, those guidelines were torn up. In the process, you know, in some cases, there were actually rules in place for what you had to do in terms of evidentiary proof to change those guidelines, let alone to tear them up, and those rules were torn up. So we had this crazy situation where completely untested um, set of response measures suddenly was implemented around the world, despite the fact that they completely contradicted everything that we knew about viral pandemics. And the very disturbing thing is when you go and you can go and look at those guidelines you can see that they're there and that that's presumably what the organizations were ready for because they're Updated them as recently in the case of the World Health Organization as October 2019. Hmm. But at almost the same time, you've got these kind of parallel organizations like Johns Hopkins University and the Gates Foundation holding mock pandemic preparedness exercises that completely contradicted everything in in the guidelines. So they've got their own idea about what should happen if there's a viral outbreak. And that version of the story, you know, untested by science or scientists is what was rolled out on us. And it happened very quickly. That's wild with the, with the help of a lot of propaganda, a lot of behavioral psychology being implemented, a lot of manipulation of social media. You've got these big tech and big pharma companies exercising a degree of control over the media narrative that is without precedent in the history of Western democracies. And that's what happened here.
0: And they got you with fear. Fear, we, we were discussing beforehand. Fear, yeah. fear, fear, fear. Everything that has been done has been yes. done to to focus on triggering that, that fear sensor and to make your average person, in many cases... Not think. They're, they're, they're just trying to react and they are like, I don't know how to deal with COVID. What's the actual name for COVID? I don't even know, but I know I can trust these experts who have invested years of their, their lives, you know, doing the research, right? I can trust these people because the media is saying I can trust these people. And to your point, Nick, it raises this, it just, this fever across the world where people just, They can't enter into conversations in a rational way because they're so incensed. They're so on edge and they're, they're just prepared to do whatever they're told is going to keep them safe next because of that uncertainty. So now we're a year removed from really when COVID started to be a thing and we have more definitive evidence that just reaffirms really what we've been saying from the beginning. So. As you were going through and we were, you know, discussing your presentation in this new video that just went out and, you know, just taking the internet by storm there. Um, let's kind of outline some of the things that were common myths that we heard. And I think one of the things that has really, and you discussed it beforehand, that's really been a big mind switch for a lot of people is this. Belief that a healthy person's default setting is possibly a danger, is possibly sick. And this notion that asymptomatic people are a risk to society, not only we knew was a bunch of baloney, but now we have
1: definitive data backing that up. Nick, could you dig into that a little bit more, please? Yeah. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right, Brian, to focus on that one because it, it is the it is the lie that underpins the entire false narrative. Without the doctrine of as- asymptomatic transmission being a driver of the epidemic. Lockdowns don't make sense. Universal mask wearing doesn't make sense. You know, even universal vaccination. I mean, there, there are lots of reasons why that doesn't make sense. But um, and I'm not saying that you know I'm not an anti-vax person. I I, I think uh, vaccinations that are safe and, and effective um, are a godsend for vulnerable people. But the idea that we need to be jabbing children and infants with an experimental drug that is only one third of the way through its trial process is immoral in the extreme. I mean, anybody who can't see that is one of these people who's gone mad with the fear, you know, uh, or it stands to make a huge profit um, by, you know, by jabbing those kids. you know, really there's no need to vaccinate anybody under the age of, you know, depending on where you are in the world, 50 or 60. I mean, and maybe in poorer countries, you can, you can drop the age, age limits a little bit. But for somebody my age who's in good health, you know, I, I I'd much rather be exposed to coronavirus than to the vaccine, um, because the, you know, there's an, and this is something maybe worth, worth just drilling into. A little yeah, bit. no, for sure. Because it, it, it's not covered in the presentation. We just didn't have time. We wanted to keep it under half an hour. This whole story of the variants, the mutations, is another fear-mongering tool. And the reason I can say that with quite a lot of force is when you sit down and talk to immunologists who are not corrupted by conflicts of interest and so on, what they will explain to you is that the human immune system produces a very broad response to a viral attack. So, if you can, if you, cons- if you just, this, yeah, you know, I'm not saying the virus is a straight line, but if you think of the, the virus as a straight line, as a spectrum, a, a long string of genetic code, which is presented in the form of proteins, the, those genes code the manufacture of proteins, okay? What's happening is when your immune system gets hold of the first example that it sees, it chops up that long string and teaches your immune system to recognize this piece and this piece and this piece. Those are called epitopes. And in a very interesting paper produced in in La Jolla, uh, out out west in the United States, um, that was released probably a month ago, they actually went and counted the epitopal responses. And what they found is that the average person produces 17 different um, responses. So, In the event that there is a mutation, or even two or three mutations, you might might knock out one, maybe two of those epitopes, but your immune system can still recognize 15 of them on average. And for some people, the number is like 40, you know. And so your natural immune response is completely able to deal with the virus should you be reinfected. And reinfection is not a terrible, frightening thing. Reinfection is the method by which your immune system is challenged. What we it's not would not be surprising to find that certain people who've had the disease and recovered get reinfected with the virus. What would be surprising is if they get sick a second time. That's very rare. So these variants, which are supposedly the the variants of concern, you know, the Darth Vader voice you have to have on when you talk about the variants of concern. Um, <clears throat> they're not a concern from the perspective of n- evading natural immunity. And now comes this question, are there a concern in terms of evading the vaccines? Right. And in this regard, it's a very interesting story because on one level, the the, the narrative, the, the the gated narrative has to be that vaccines work. And so you can't make too much of a scene about the variants evading the vaccines. But on the other hand, if you can leave the story on the side and bring it up in about three months' time, then I can sell you some new vaccines, okay? So there's this emergent story that's being almost imported into the narrative by these uh, kind of marginal scientists like, uh, what's his name, Geert van der Bosch, okay, Um, who has a video that's gone viral. You know, it's all over there. Nobody's shutting it down. He's basically saying that the vaccines are going to cause an absolute disaster, that it's going to bypass our innate immune systems and everybody's going to die. Okay. Now, why is that little media item being accepted? Because what it's doing is while that story grows, we'll vaccinate everybody. And then we'll say, oh, look, that guy was right. We need to bring in a new vaccine and give everybody a vaccine all over again and make another $15 billion of profit or whatever the number is. It's probably well north of that. you know. So, so there's this story of the variants. And the, the story of whether they have evade vaccines is in itself interesting because those spike epitopes, sorry, spike proteins that, the, um, that a lot of the vaccines uh, feature – that's what they've done is they take one fairly long portion of the virus and they go and teach your immune system that portion. And that's what produces, that's how the vaccine produces the immune response. Now, that spike protein is long. It's got like 12,000 uh, uh, genes on it. And um, sorry, genes is the wrong term. But anyway, broadly speaking, it's long. And you get a, um, so you might get 42 different. Um, epitopes that uh, out of, you know, 67 or whatever it is that the um, the human body recognizes focusing on the spike protein. And so a mutation in the spike protein also wouldn't cause the vaccine to be evaded. You know, there's no question that vaccine immunity is narrower than natural immunity. And so there again, you've just got to listen to the conflicted scientists who are trying so hard to say that Vaccine immunity is going to be better than natural immunity. You know, that, that's nonsense. You definitely you won't be able to demonstrate that even if it was the case, and it's unlikely to be so for decades, you know. Right. It's not something you can demonstrate now. Um, and it's very, very unlikely. So that's a marker. If you hear a scientist saying that, you you've got to assume they're bullshitters, you know, in the pocket of big pharma. So yeah, the, the variance issue is right now being used to stoke up fear and to provoke people to continue wearing masks and locking down and all these crazy things that are so desperately harmful and so totally unhelpful. And it's just getting to the point of ridiculousness. And your team at at Panda, so you can say this with
0: you know extreme confidence because your team is so yes. diverse. I mean you have people formerly from the pharmaceutical industry, you have people from you know the the immunologists you mentioned the list of types of you know epidemiologists, yeah. immunologists. Goodness, Dr. Scott Atlas, you know, he's he's one of your advisors yeah. for the uh, for for Panda. And yeah. you guys are Kugolf,
1: Bhattacharya, Gupta, you know, Bhakti, Um these are great names. These right. are people who, you know, with publication lists and citations and awards that just go on and on and on. I mean, they make the rest of us look like Complete monkeys, but, um, you know, yeah. And so when I publish something, you know, it, it, an article in a newspaper or something like that, it goes on to the Google Docs, you know, and it's the most intimidating thing because the next thing that happens is the four or five designated scientists out of the hundred or whatever, all come crawling into the Google Doc and start tearing it apart, you know? <laughs> so by the time I pump something out, I'm very confident that nobody's going to say to me, well, that's misinformation, you know? Yeah. Uh, because that's the problem is, you know, we're always under the spotlight in a way that you know, the media puts us under the spotlight, but they never put the damn health professionals under the spotlight. And they speak nonsense all the time, you know, yeah. absolute nonsense. Yeah. And so they get a free pass. We get scrutinized. Okay, but we just lift our game. We make sure that it's all scientifically correct. And so we, we published an article on the variants, for example, a couple of weeks ago That's that's been very well received. Um, and tells the story, lays the story out in plain English so that a layman, an intelligent layman can can understand it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I speak not as a as an expert, but as a person who is uh, subject to the – I was going to use the word discipline. I suppose it is discipline in a way, but more – I, I, I have access to the input of a lot of very, very bright people.
0: Yeah. And I, this, I guess – because we are kind of doing this behind the scenes reaction to your video. And yeah. you're seeing there's a lot of people who I think are starting to maybe say, oh, maybe the past year's narrative, maybe it wasn't correct. Yeah. But there's there's still a strong, fervent group of people who firmly believe that not only has the, the course of action that we've been taking been the right course of action, but the reason that it has been the right course of action has been the well the what ifs the we didn't know what could happen right so to those folks yeah. nick i mean how can we win win those people over i mean is is there winning them over
1: i i, I think there's a minority of people who you'll never win over um, they, they will go to their graves believing that every element of the policy response, of the mass squaring, of the perspex dividers, of the silly stickers on the floor was absolutely warranted, very effective, and saved us all from dying. You know, um, I, I think you will never convert those people, and I'll never think of them as being in our kind of target market. But I think there are a lot of people in the middle ground for whom. You know, some of this stuff is starting to look a little ridiculous now. They're starting to say, well, wait a second. You said to us that when we got vaccinated, we'd get our lives back, you know. Yeah. And now you're telling us we're going to have to wear these silly masks for, uh, you know, until 2025 was one of the claims made by uh, a health, uh, a public health person in the UK. You know, um, I'm, I'm smelling a rat, you know. And, and it was very interesting when I, this, this presentation was unusual for me because I gave it in front of a, li- a live audience as in live, as in, you know, real time, but also as in people, people. real human beings. <laughs> in real the people, flesh, yeah. You know, <laughs> sitting in a hall. You know? And it, it was really interesting um, because there was a very, I could see the emotional reaction. There were people in the audience taking off their masks midway through the presentation. You could see, it was like the scales falling from their eyes, you know? And then afterwards, you know, when the whole thing had finished, which because I was the first start in the morning, and there were a couple more presentations. It took me five hours to get back to my hotel room. And there was this very interesting thing that was happening. I, there were people who were, like, incredibly emotional, you know, shaking almost, crying in tears. And coming and telling me their stories, what had happened to them, you know, during lockdown. And it was interesting because a certain part of that audience already heard our story and they were almost there to hear it again. You know, that was a sort of a a people who are part of our fan club, okay? And they were not emotional because for them, this is all just making complete sense. But it was the people for, I think, who came in and maybe hadn't heard of us or who were a little bit skeptical about us. They were the ones who had the strong emotional action reaction because they sit back and think about it. Wait a second. How much have I lost here? What does this all cost me? And it was you telling me it's all for nothing. And when I listen to your presentation, I believe you. Those people just wanted to cry. And it, it had a big effect on me because I it's the first time I've been in that kind of situation. And so for a few days afterwards, I was actually grappling, dealing, battling de- to deal with all the stories that I'd heard. And this, uh, it was a completely unexpected reaction for me. Um, and one that I've never experienced in any environment ever before. Now, I think, I think the last person, <laughs> uh, to leave my presence in was at three o'clock. In the morning, you know, it was, it caused a very cathartic kind of process. And it worries me a little bit because I think there's a whole world or half a world because, you know, most countries out in, in Asia and in the rest of Africa didn't do these crazy things. But yeah, more safely more than half of the world has gone through exactly the process. And more than half the people in those countries bought into the false narrative and went along with the malarkey because they believed that they were saving people. They were doing a good thing. It was their goodness that was being exploited here. And I think when those people turn and they will turn, they will, it's, it's a certainty. You can't maintain such an elaborate lie for much longer than a year I, I, you know, to call much longer than now really yeah. is what i'm trying to say
0: well i think well um, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt your thought but i think that right yeah. there that might be part of why this hasn't stopped because it would require those people in positions of power to do the unthinkable and that is to say we were wrong and they will never yeah. do that. Like, it, like I, I look in in my home state of New York, seeing someone like Andrew Cuomo to this day still standing by his nursing home policy. We just saw Rachel yeah. Levine get appointed to the top, one of the top second uh, health positions here in the United States from Pennsylvania, who pulled their their mother out of the nursing home before they implemented their nursing home policy that killed the thousands of seniors in nursing homes. So, it would require people to effectively say, yeah, not only did we do the wrong policy, but also I guess our policy did end up causing more death than we said it wasn't going to. And and I don't know about you, Nick, this is something I heard from the very beginning is that well, you just want people to die. You don't care. You you you're yeah, you're sure. you're so dangerous. Your ideas are, are just gonna put more people at risk. And now we're yeah. seeing the exact opposite. you you showed me your, your slide presentation beforehand. What was the number? I mean, fifteen million people was it you know expected for starvation across the world this year? Something like that. I think the numbers are going yeah, you're up an
1: order of magnitude. I'm afraid, yeah,
0: it's going to be insane.
1: Uh, yeah, um, I, I I hear what you're saying, but I, I tell you where I think there's a little bit of subtlety that's maybe worth picking out. I, yeah, please. Uh, if, if what what you see, what you say is correct, that I don't think the people who have been the face of all of these things will ever. Uh, step down naturally, but what will happen is they will be thrown under the bus.
0: Yes, they already. have already
1: seen a little bit with Cuomo. Um, you know, where, when their political parties or backers realize that the winds are turning, and that they're going to need scapegoats, and they're going to need um, that. Basically, what they've done is they've used them as useful idiots, and they will now be treated exactly like the useful idiots of the. You know, the regimes of Stalin and Mao lined up against the wall and shot. I'm, I'm not saying they should be shot. I mean that proverbially, you know, they will be thrown under the bus. And so the Faucis and the Drostons and the Cuomo's and, um, uh, yeah, you can just carry on the list of names as obviously as, as, as long as you care to make it. But the, those people will be discarded by the power players who will try to say, this is a scandal. You advised me to do this and you showed me this forecast and you, 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 and they will blame and in an effort to maintain political power, you know? So I think that's how it'll play out. Yeah. Now, that will be a completely insincere game. But hey, welcome to politics. You know, there it is. Nothing new under the
0: sun. What's the, because you mentioned him, we haven't talked about him yet. Dr. Fauci. Good old Dr. Fauci. He he has been propped up for the past year as pretty much the best doctor ever in the United States. Um but he's been on record, what, saying one thing and then saying the other, complete opposite position months later, or found saying it years earlier. Um so I'm just curious, you're speaking to a lot of folks in the the greater scientific community, in the epidemiologist, immunologist community. What's, mm-hmm. what's the perception of dr fauci do they look at him as is someone who's actually following yeah. any science or is he at this point just no. a political player
1: no they they look at him as a as a complete charlatan a liar and a fraud is just nobody in the community of independent scientists who thinks that that guy has anything to send sensible to say at, at, at this time about the epidemic they all were pretty impressed. With his March paper, because very early on, he and Redfield wrote a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine where they concluded, and it's it's in the presentation, that the impact of coronavirus would be more or less in line with the severe seasonal influenza, which it has been. It's exactly what it has been, you know. And uh, you get people saying, oh, it's the worst epidemic since the 1918 Spanish influenza, you know. Well, uh, yes and no. And don't don't say that without also saying that the population mortality rate is one sixtieth of that epidemic. One sixtieth, not one sixth. Right. You know? So yeah, it's it's a it's been a severe seasonal flu. Probably, you know, you can have the argument is it better or was it lighter or heavier than the fifty seven, fifty eight epidemic. But it's not, you know, it's not way out of whack with other seasonal uh, respiratory virus epidemics that have been, you know, bad ones. Okay. So yes, people did die. Would we have preferred not to have had this? Of course. Yes. We would, we would prefer to have managed it better than we did, but this is not the Spanish flu by any stretch of the imagination. And what he did was in January, February, and March, he summarized the science pretty well saying in the history of respiratory viruses, there's never been a, a situation where asymptomatic people were drivers of the epidemic. That's correct. And it's still correct to this day. He said, there's no point wearing surgical masks in the general population, let alone cloth ones. You know, he said, he says the, the impact is going to be in line with the seasonal influenza. And he writes that spectacular paper with Redfield, who's the other chief Panic officer in you know in cahoots with them, and um, and then suddenly, sometime in April, his brain switches, and I think unless we get people onto witness stands to find out what caused him to switch, you will never find out because there was certainly no emerging evidence the emerging evidence in the time frame around the end of the first quarter last year and the beginning of the second quarter all endorsed his original viewpoint and the one that we've been beating the drum about since then, you know, that the World Health Organization's original estimates of mortality were out by an order of magnitude, that all of the modelers were way out, that the, the potential benefits of lockdown were greatly overestimated. Everything that we've been saying is, is bang in line with the science up until about February of last year, and then all those scientists go completely batshit crazy, Fauci and Redfield included, and Ferguson and Drosten and Vila and all these, you know, fiends, they all go crazy and take the world with them. And I want to know, I want to see those people on witness stands so we can understand what went on. Because it's not simply the case that because Bruce Aylward came back from a, a one-week trip to China and said, "Ah, the Chinese lockdown seems to have worked, that the world locked down." You know there was much more to it than that. And I think a very interesting thing is that a lot of the features of these lockdowns, even though these lockdowns, even though they uh, contradicted all the guidelines, were very much in line with the thinking that was presented in the agenda 201 um presentation that i spoke about also around october 2019 you know where these people sit down and have a mock pandemic exercise where they lay out something that contradicts all the guidelines
0: wow it's it's unfortunate (laughs) i don't know if i had a better word to say because i mean We've been saying this for a year, Nick, and this is why it's like it. Yeah. Sometimes there's a meme, um, it perfectly encapsulates. You know, I'm in the Greater Liberty movement. And it's like what your family thinks we do versus what we actually do, and it's like what I actually do is smash my head against the table because we've been saying this stuff for a year, and quite literally could have prevented so many millions of lost lives, so many millions of of lost productivity years in the future, if. Just we didn't react the way we did. I mean, if we had not taken, you know, basically marching orders from from China, from how to handle air quotes big on the air quotes on the word handle the pandemic by doing these these you know very authoritarian lockdowns, we could have prevented so much ma- you know mass starvation, um, you know mass joblessness, mass depression, drug use, despair. We're seeing it all skyrocket. So it drives me crazy that we could have had this been avoided, but. Your focus on the the topic at hand has been well. Now it's time to reopen society, right? Like now, now yeah. we're focusing on, I guess, the light at the end of the tunnel. And you're mentioning we're you're, you're seeing it; places are opening up, the the narratives are falling. So, what are some, I guess, some some things we can look forward to as we are approaching this proverbial light at the end of the tunnel? This very crazy past year and a half.
1: Yeah, look, I mean the the bright the bright spots. Have obviously been the states like Texas and Florida and Arizona that have been opening up. I mean, some of them, you know, you can really say South Dakota stayed open, um, and and you know, uh, no n- no particular ca- calamity there. Same kind of story as manifested in North Dakota. You know, just showing once again that these measures were broadly unhelpful um, and but very harmful. Um, so I think those states, we owe them all a great deal of appreciation and thanks because they will, they have already shown that it is completely unnecessary to go through these charades of social distancing, lockdowns and masks. And they're all just complete nonsense, absolutely without basis in science and the data. And look, everything's fine there. And, of course, there's the the test cases of Sweden and Japan, which didn't lock down at all, and um, countries like Taiwan and South Korea where, you know, okay, it's maybe not a right to use them as examples because they sit in the middle of a region where they, broadly speaking, wasn't a pandemic. You know, the mortality rates for Africa, Asia, and Oceania from covid or a hundred per million, which is like about, that's about 1% of their annual deaths, you know, it's nothing. So, um, and that's below the level of, you know, what a normal flu season would do. And why is that, um, I'm, I'm sorry,
0: I don't mean to interrupt your train. I thought, is there a reason in particular those areas were just completely missed?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because the science has been so distorted by the rabid madness, the basic studies that would answer those questions haven't been done. If I was in New Zealand, I would have said, well, this is very interesting. The disease made landfall in New Zealand. It's highly contagious. Why didn't it spread? Now, of course, what happens is the scientists there, it's the best lockdown and the border closure, and we, you know, they pat themselves on the back and they have contact tracing and all this nonsense. Okay. What I would have said is, okay, maybe, but let's just go and do a serology test to see if we've already got antibodies and Even if that doesn't show up anything, let's do a T-cell test. Let's go and take a a substantial cross-section of our population, a few thousand people, and see whether there is pre-existing immunity to this disease. Because now there are dozens of papers showing the mechanisms and the extent of pre-existing immunity. And in some of the populations in which it's measured, it's it's estimated at upwards of 80% of people, you know. And why is this the case? It's not an unexpected thing. It's not at all surprising. And so, SARS-CoV-2 is so closely related to SARS-CoV-1 that it doesn't even really merit a distinct name. That was kind of a little bit of a marketing exercise. This this is a rose by any other name. It should really just be called SARS, a variant of SARS, Okay. And so it's not a new virus, it's an individuum of the beta coronavirus known as SARS-CoV. Okay. So isn't sorry, and even more than that, that virus, SARS-CoV, is very closely related to four viruses that circulate generally in the human population. And you remember I gave the story of the long string and how the how the human immune system recognizes lots of parts of that virus. Well, if your virus is 96.5% the same as HCoV, which circulates as a seasonal cold, guess what? A whole lot of people would have seen this thing fairly recently and their immune systems will recognize it and they'll deal with it fine. That's where you get the so-called asymptomatic cases. It's a completely bogus term for them. What you should call them is, those are the healthy people <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when they get exposed to the virus, have a very, such a light a reaction to it that they wouldn't notice that they'd had it unless you'd given them a damn PCR test, you know? Um, <clears throat> so yeah, we, we have this situation where instead of doing antibody tests and T cell tests in New Zealand and Australia, they've concluded that their lockdowns were just the best thing. I, I, I have a strong suspicion that if you went and did those tests in those populations, what you'd find is that there was never really a risk of those diseases breaking out in those territories. Why? Because they weren't the only two countries in the region. Some, f- whatever, 70 other countries had similarly light experience. Some of them didn't lock down at all. Some of them don't even have the capacity to lock down. Right. Some of them are, you know, desperately poor places that couldn't organize a contact tracing um. Exercise, if you know, in a in a room of two people, you know, um, that's that's pretty much what you're dealing with. You know, 52 countries in Africa. Uh, I don't know how many countries there are in Asia, but it must be, I would guess, something in the region of 30, um, <clears throat> including the tiny ones. You know, um, and so in none of those countries was there anything going on yet. The whole lockdown crowd go. Oh, Australia, New Zealand, you know, wonderful story. Look at how how brilliant their lockdown was, you know. Everything is seen through the lens of one factor when we know that multiple factors influence outcomes and that one of them, which is very noted in every study that's ever been done, is cross-immunity or pre-existing immunity, you know.
0: And how about what we're seeing with, like, people who are getting sick? And this is something that we're not talking about, and I don't know why nobody's talking about it. It's like 70% of the cases of mortality rate are people who are morbidly obese, like elephant in the room, no pun intended, but like obesity rates, and we see this predominantly in America, especially in America, it, that's one of the leading causes. And, and then I'm like, hold on. So that's one of the leading causes. And yet we're going to go ahead and shut down all
1: of the fitness centers because science? So there, there's a lot to be untangled there because the f- the first important thing that's also not spoken about is that almost all the transmission or the, let's let's not say almost all the vast majority of transmission takes place in nosocomial settings meaning in hospitals and nursing homes okay now if you're morbidly obese you're going to be making much more regular trips to the doctor or to hospital okay and if transmission takes place in those environments, why? Because that's where you find the vulnerable people, the morbid people, the comorbid people, and the virus at high concentrations. So you take the the the, the vulnerable people and put them into a, a building where they're high, they're exposed to a high inoculum, and they get sick and die. Let's talk about that causal chain. You know, yes, coronavirus is involved. In that causal chain. I'm not arguing that case, it should appear on the death certificate somewhere. But is that really what's the cause here? Right. And then, even worse than that, you take somebody who's presented at the hospital with non-COVID symptoms. You run a very high cycle threshold PCR test and find a little, you know, a little, a little virus had flitted across the nasal membranes. Uh, causes the test to trigger positive, bang, into the coronavirus ward. You know, clinically, that's a false positive. They're not at hospital because of their coronavirus. But if they're fortunate enough to leave hospital, they will have been f- infected. Right. Yeah. So you've got somebody who's arriving sick from something else being shoved into a coronavirus ward. And that is definitely… The, so the extent here of what are known as iatrogenic deaths… I think when the full analysis is in, you will find that uh, as maybe even more than half of all the deaths that have been legitimate COVID deaths, I'm not talking about the the misattributed deaths, I'm talking about the fraction of those that are legitimate deaths. I would guess that more than half of those have been iatrogenic deaths, caused either by people being pushed into settings that are dangerous for them because of the PCR test, or by people being shoved onto ventilators because, oh, they got COVID, or people being treated by doctors who are suffering from, from what we call COVID tunnel vision, where basically everything they see has to be squashed into a coronavirus box. I mean, I don't know what it's like in the United States, but in South Africa, we've heard of doctors writing down COVID pancreatitis on the death certificate. You know, somebody arrives at hospital with abdominal pain, They give them the admission test. Test is positive. Okay. COVID patient, everybody goes. All right. But he's got no COVID symptoms. Dies of pancreatitis, possibly because nobody knew what to do with him for the first two days while they were waiting for the test result. Okay. And then that's COVID pancreatitis. Now, that death is a, will very often be, I think, uh, an iatrogenic death where the doctor is looking at this patient as, If Wow, that's a strange manifestation of coronavirus, you know, and treating it in the wrong way. I think also people with bacterial co-infections who have not been treated with antibiotics because they're being treated as if they've only got a viral infection, you know. Um, All sorts of things like this will turn out to have been the case. Um, The panic has definitely been much, much worse than the actual true epidemic, which I think has been actually reasonably contained. Then um, was, that that's the other, So that's the other thing that's worth saying. When I said that this is maybe as bad as the fifty-seven, fifty-eight flu, mm-hmm. I think it's only been that bad because of the panicked response.
0: Yeah, and then that led perfectly into my next question, and that is, we've seen this happen before. It's happening now. How how can we help prevent this in the future? And I think that maybe is a great way to, to as we're getting ready to focus towards the end of the episode is we we know. What works, we know. What doesn't work, so I'll say Nick. When we're setting policy going forward, this this we we're seeing that there's going to be long term ramifications for sure. We're going to be feeling it. But how can we make sure that we set this in place so this this never happens again? Because this this is just absolute insanity.
1: Yeah. So to that you've got to, for that you've got to do a root cause analysis. And unfortunately, some of the roots of this particular. Mania are very very deep, um, I, you know. And so maybe let's go through the easier ones first. Work backwards in time to you know from the more recent routes to the older ones, because the more recent ones I think are easier. So, I mean, I think the one thing that needs to happen is that in countries that have constitutions, you need to make amendments to those constitutions to rule out this kind of action. Now I've, I've become pretty convinced that there's no set of circumstances where lockdowns are warranted, where the termination of democratic process is warranted in the face of a disease. Why? Because if there really is a deadly disease going around, people will manage their own risks. I don't know if you remember the, the Chinese propaganda videos of the falling men and, you know, there was that classic thing. Now we all know that that was garbage because nobody's gone around falling over. This is not how you get the, this this disease causes you to get progressively tighter in the chest, you know, in terms of uh, you, you're running into breathing problems. You're becoming hypoxic. It takes some time. And you arrive at hospital in a certain amount of distress. You don't just, you're walking down the street quite fine and then the next moment you drop down dead. You know, this is not how disease uh, works. So we know that that was all just propaganda by the Chinese Communist Party uh, spread about the world by a host of human bots. That's something else that has to be investigated. How the hell did we suddenly have thousands of people in every country in the world ready to receive and proselytize this Chinese propaganda, you know? Um, that That's a very interesting thing, and you need to look at the work that Michael Sen has been doing in that regard because it's it's almost spooky, you know, ridiculous. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we, you have to look at the constitutions and and say, okay, let's work out ways to make this kind of action illegal. And there are countries in the world where it was Finland, Sweden, um, uh, Malawi. Um, yeah, not 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 many, but a few countries where the governments either tried or didn't even bother trying because they knew that there would be no legal basis for it. So, make lockdowns impossible legally would be a good step. But it's not going to be possible everywhere. Some countries don't have constitutions, and the governments can do what they want. You know. Um, And they rely on the law courts to interpret what they've done. And, you know, even in England, where there's a very strong common law tradition, the courts have been basically neutered, you know, um, it, it completely emasculated, uh, and haven't done the right thing once. So you can't really rely on the, the institutions to function properly when everybody's driven into panic. Um, more, more important than that, I think we need to look at ways to decentralize all these organizations oh, because the, the problem with centralization is it destroys the means of error correction. And, um, that's in my mind, destruction of the means of error correction is actually the greatest sin in the world. Okay. If you can, if, if error correction is what enables us not only to course correct, but to learn. It's fundamental to knowledge creation and economic growth and alleviation of poverty and any good thing you can name. So terminating the means of error correction is the greatest evil. And error correction is not possible in heavily centralized environments. They believe their own bullshit very quickly. They they set up Gated institutional narratives, um, and the World Health Organization is just—it's you know we've we've got some insiders who talk to us, you know, which they're not allowed to do—they sign contracts, and uh, it's it's crazy shit, man. What goes on in there, in terms of they they almost get taught a double speak language, really, you know? Yeah, it's just it's just phenomenal, and so there's a certain way of talking around the elephants in the room, you know. But wait a second we haven't done a cost-benefit analysis on lockdown you know you've got to be able to talk your way around that elephant how do you do it how do you never ever once recommend to countries that before you implement a lockdown you should do a cost-benefit analysis you're the world health organization you do burden of disease calculations for a living you know (laughs) how is it that you don't make that statement okay um so we've got to look at politically at ways to decentralize these organizations at better. And then the other thing is we've gotten lax on maintaining independence and monitoring conflicts of interest. All of these guys at the universities and at the public health institutions are completely corrupted by their funding, which comes from the World Health Organization, the Gates Foundation, Gavi, and related parties. And so, yeah, fine, okay, if, if there's going to be corporate funding of um, of research programs, that's all right, but then don't have those guys making decisions about which vaccine to use, you know, or, or who gets the vaccine, or whether to lock down a bit more, or whether to ban a promising cheap drug. These people are all deeply conflicted, so you've got to maybe create some rules around that to monitor and manage the conflicts. But then I'm afraid the deeper problem, which I think this is a manifestation of, is a, a multi-decadal slide in education. We have allowed the, the this kind of radical skepticism. It's, a, it's, a, it's the the spawn of a uh, a very postmodern view of the world to creep into the organizations that. Educate our youth. And according to that view of the world, there is no reality. Opinion is what's more important. Your place in the power structure, your place in the hierarchy. And you can see this, you know, coming out to play now. When you go and confront these guys with something that offends the narrative and you show them some data they don't come back at you with data of their own and have an intellectual debate. They try and cancel you. They try and have you kicked out of so, out of social media of LinkedIn or YouTube or whatever. They try and shout you down. That comes from that kind of radical skepticism, the, the postmodern view of the world. Um, and it has to be undone. Or, or we must just abandon those those institutions of higher learning and start new ones, because they they truly have bred the most incapable, inept, and absolutely painful generation of of kids. I don't care if they can be 50, they're still kids, because they, they just do not know the first thing about how to confront problems, how to create explanations for complex phenomena, and how to engage in debate with people who are trying to do that as well. And so for me, that is just something that has hit me like a bucket full of iced water, that the time is up for those institutions. We have to count out now and stop this radical administrative creep and the and the the onward march of these crazy, crazy theories like critical theory and you know, endless number of wokisms. Um, that that invade the academy and even as it turns out, stretch into the STEM subjects.
0: Yeah. Well, it's and insane. it's, we need to, cr- I mean, almost crowdsource alternatives. I mean, I have um, you know, a good friend of my show here, uh, Corey DeAngelis. He works uh, focusing on school choice options for in the United States, getting kids yeah. just alternative solutions to the education system and I think we need to do that more into the, the higher ed, right? We need to start instead of yeah. saying, okay, just because you have a degree from, name the Ivy League University here and that makes you instantly a qualified candidate, no, let's let's actually have you go through, you know, working in almost like crowdsource kind of a way with certain people who are focused on certain topics that, hey, maybe you're particularly passionate about, you get really, really good at those things and then we collaborate and we learn from each other instead of just saying, oh, I have my degree and well, you just have to trust me, and oh, by the way, the funding that I have, uh, that can go to whatever project I want. I'm going to have that project, you know, obviously yield a result that's going to, you know, push policy that we can then put into to action, and then we can. I mean, who was? Oh, you know who it was. It was Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro um, mentioned back when he went to, I think it was Harvard, how he was in the, the law school, um, the amphitheater, and at the time it was Elena Kagan, who is now a Supreme Court Justice in the uh, United States Supreme Court, and she was the intro uh, law professor saying, "You are." to the collective class, the future of America. You're making the policy. And just because you're leaving this institution with a degree from Harvard, you are instantly going to be the top of society. And that's the mentality. That's the, the, the way that a lot of people think. It's not a matter of what you're actually learning. It's not a matter of what ideas you're testing, but rather the degree, where it's from, you know, who, who did you know in terms of, you know, being able to get these connections. So I'm hopeful that people are going to start waking up from this, Nick. So how about this? As we do focus towards the end of the show, I want to make sure we're pointing folks um, towards Panda, but you, you're raising your finger. You have a point to make, go ahead, make your point.
1: Yeah. I I think that kind of thinking is exactly what is going to be required. Um, We, we're going to need different ways of signaling reliable knowledge and understanding um, other than university degrees. Because I think, as you correctly point out, you can you can kind of get a, uh, by virtue of your GPA and your family connections, you can make it into a top school, come out with a degree, and that tells the person something about you. Uh, there's been some kind of selection process on the way in, um but it doesn't really these days count for much on the way out because you've got the potential for somebody to graduate from a Harvard or a Yale with their head full of nonsense, you know, and and nothing really that's of use in the real world, of practical use. In fact, I think a lot of the time those educations will make it impossible almost for you to be useful. If you believe the stuff that they've taught you, you're not going to be building the next spaceship to Mars. Sorry. It'll crash. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry. So it's good for the, the gender studies wah-wah segment of the HR department of Amazon or Google. You can get a job there, okay? But you're not going to be doing anything useful to man or beast. And that, I think, is – a problem that is going to, it's going to have a market solution. You know, smaller entrepreneurial firms have got no interest hiring those people and they're going to start looking for other ways to signify or signal uh, quality, to test quality.
0: Always. Well, hey, you mentioned uh, your team is growing over at Panda. So, how about this? We want to make sure yep. that folks who do want to get more involved, but also just want to learn more about Panda, which is the pandemic data and analytics, they can go ahead and find and learn more. So, Nick, where can folks go ahead and do that?
1: So, um, the starting point would be our website, www.pandata.org. Um, you know, the, there's a little process of try if people want to join as active members, which is The requirement for that is that they have sufficient independence and time on their hands to actually contribute to the organization. It's not a social club. It's not a a form of social media. We do look for people who can actually do some work and who want to end the madness, Um, but there'd be a little bit of an introduction process and then an induction process and that would include introducing them to the members in their own countries and their own fields worldwide and so on. Um, so we're always keen to hear from such people who can help us. Um, the the organization has grown to the extent that we now need to put in place a permanent executive. You know, the people who run the organization, with the exception of three full-time people, um, are part-time volunteers. So I have a day job. I'm an investor. I run a fund. I have a responsibility to those investors. I also have reached the limit of my managerial abilities. I'm not a manager, you know. So we've come to the point where we need to hire uh, a full-time executive. And that takes funding. And we have been the the, the very grateful uh, beneficiaries of s- some generous uh, crowdfunding support. We want to s- maintain our independence from corporates and institutions. So we are going to be running a bit of a campaign on crowdfunding. And I think this is of the work we're doing is of global importance. And so any support in that regard would be greatly appreciated. We need to, you know, raise a couple of million dollars to in in order to put that, uh, executive structure in place in order so that the, the, the good science work done by all these wonderful volunteers can be, you know, pulled into the mainstream and, and explained to the intelligent layman. And that, that's where we, that's where we're heading for. So the starting point is, you know, the presentation and hearing this move on to the website pandata.org. You can also follow our Twitter and Facebook handles, which are, uh, both in both cases, it's at pandata19 P A N D A T A 19. I'm on Twitter and, and my handle is at Nick Hudson C T for Cape Town. Um, so yeah, those are the ways to get in touch and we're, you know, true to our word, true to our philosophy, we totally embrace uh, innovation, the world of conjecture and criticism. So we don't only want to hear from people who agree with us, you know.
0: Nick Hudson. Uh, we could go on forever, um, but unfortunately, I know you have an interview coming up on your end as well, so hey, thank you so much yeah. for spending some time with us today, and thank you for all the hard work you're doing over at Panda. We'll make sure we include the link to the amazing new video Time to Reopen Society. Um, and Again, folks, you have to make sure you watch that before. Uh, I mean, obviously, they made it through the entire episode. I hope they listened to the video beforehand, uh, but otherwise, yeah. folks, share that episode uh, or that video with, with uh, folks out there. It's very important that we uh, we spread the message of truly what's going on with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Nick Hudson, thank you for join The Brian Nichols Show.
1: Thank you, Brian. Bye-bye.
0: Get ready to start your new morning ritual with our new sponsor, Mudwater. Coffee is one of America's favorite beverages with more and more people starting their coffee habits every day with a cup of that flavorful anxiety juice. But let's be real. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm working on getting more coffee into my life? Millions of people complain about the jitters that come from coffee consumption. Our morning coffee rituals can be habit-forming and for some people, can make getting a good night's sleep almost impossible. And while nearly all of us like the smell, taste and ritual of our morning coffee, why not explore eliminating the negative aspects of our morning brew? Well, what if your coffee replacement helped Induce alertness, not dependency, improve mental capacity and function, improve physical stamina and performance, improve immunity and overall health. Oh, and by the way, it tastes good enough to drink every single day. Meet Mudwater. Mudwater is your fastest growing coffee alternative in the market consisting of organic ingredients lauded by cultures both old and young for their health and performance benefits. With one-seventh the caffeine of coffee, mud gives you the natural energy and focus you expect from coffee, but without the jitters and crash. With an organic blend of mushrooms and ingredients like cacao, marsala chai, turmeric, lion's mane, and more, Mudwater offers a beverage like no other. Whether you want to enjoy it hot, cold, as a latte, or however you take your coffee in the morning, Mudwater is zero sugar, zero crash, zero jitter alternative, sure to leave you feeling recharged and refocused. Listen, I'm really excited to have Mudwater as a sponsor here on The Brian Nichols Show because I've been able to see the Mudwater difference for myself, and you can too, so click the link in the show notes. To get some mud, support the show, and get your new morning ritual started right with mud water. Alrighty, folks, that's gonna wrap up my conversation with Nick Hudson from Panda. What a topical conversation. And honestly, I, again, I didn't expect to air this episode today, but it just was one of those things where it's like, yep, this works. I mean, it, it it's perfectly timed. And the fact that, um, you know, his, his amazing video here, The Ugly Truth About Lockdowns is, is, it's not just reaching people that it needs to reach but it's having an impact. And that was something that he shared. Uh, it really did hit me. You know, people staying until 3 a.m. talking about their lockdown experience. What, I mean, how did it impact them? And I would love to hear that myself. So do me a solid. I'm going to leave you guys with a call to action. I'll a few, But first, I want you to email me, brian at com with your lockdown story. What was your experience during the lockdown? Did, did you lose a job? Did you experience financial hardship? Wh- whatever it may have been, I'd love to hear your story. So email me, brian at briannicholsshow.com, number one. Number two, if you enjoy today's episode, when you share it, please do me a solid and tag myself and you can tag me at bnicholsliberty, Twitter, Facebook, minds.com, and parlor.com, but also make sure you tag Nick and Panda. I will include the social media links in the show notes. Number three, if you could do me a solid head over to Apple Podcasts, if you enjoyed today's episode and you enjoy what you're doing here The Brian Nichols Show, a five-star rating and review, I would greatly appreciate that. And hey, we just gave you a fun random bonus episode on a Saturday, which, I mean, this is a fantastic conversation to be had. So thank you to Nick Hudson for, for joining us here on the show today, and thank you to the member of the audience for helping us continue to pump out three four, five episodes per week, because, hey, you guys keep downloading it, and you guys keep on getting a lot of value, so we'll keep on doing out here The Brian Nickel Show, because our goal is to what? Ah, yeah, we know the drill. Educate, enlighten, and inform. So with that being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Nick Hudson. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.